When you watch a trailer for a Paul Thomas Anderson film, you may think it's a standard, accessible, run-of-the-mill, assembly line feature. But when you actually watch one, you realize it's anything but. Cryptic, tangential, confusing, and undeniably well-crafted, the jury is out on Paul Thomas Anderson. Are his movies prolific or pedantic, nuanced or nonsensical, challenging or tripe? Today I'm joined by Dr. Theron Judson, and together we'll unthread the sequins and reveal the secrets sewn within the fabric of Paul Thomas Anderson. How'd you like that? I just wrote that now. Theron, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kind of surprised that you invited me back. Yeah, me too. Um, now, why don't you let everybody know, remind everybody what kind of a doctor you are? So, so, uh, so. Speaking of the jury still being out on something. <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to make a similar joke. I, no, I was going to say um, uh, other doctors would say we're not real doctors. Psych- psychiatry. Um, we, uh, we spend a lot of time in medical school learning about medicine and learning nothing of psychology, uh, yet uh, sort of practice psychology and don't use any of our medical training. But, uh, but here I am, uh, and, and it seems like uh, themes that I'm dealing with at work are often coming up in these movies, so um, lots to talk about. I see, very good. But you have no film background per se. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So you're a natural guest. Uh, <laughs> you may know more than certainly many of the guests or hosts we've had on this, <laughs> on this program. Um, you watched all of the Paul Thomas Anderson movies or many of them to prepare I thought for we this? were doing Wes Anderson movies. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, wa- I watched all of them except for... Um, Magnolia. I hope Ooh. we weren't going to do a lot of talking on that. Well, you still can. No. I saw everything else. No, I... No, I... No. So I, I watched fewer than you did to prepare for this, and some of them I'd seen back in the day. So I'm going to be having to recollect, uh, or okay. you can lead the charge on the conversation. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna start off with a, a pretty subjective question. Um, do you like him? Do you like his movies? So when we watched The Master like a decade ago, my answer would have been no, right? uh, Because I was perplexed after that, and then and then we ended up watching Licorice Pizza, uh, and then my answer still would have been no. (laughs) But but I didn't I didn't realize that he'd also done uh, some cinephile I am. Uh, I didn't realize that he'd done uh, Phantom Thread, which I which I really liked. I didn't realize he did uh, There Will Be Blood, which I, which I really liked. And then now, having watched a lot of them again, um, and like a second viewing of The Master, um, a second viewing of Phantom Thread, I'd say, yeah, yeah, I do like him. Um, rewatching some of these movies or watching some of these for the first time, uh, which ones stood out to you? The ones that you mentioned, Phantom Thread, or the, but those are ones you had seen before. That's right. Yeah. Were, were there I, any this time that you really came to like that you didn't before? Or, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like uh, the master. Like yeah. I um, com- totally didn't didn't get it the first time around, and 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 maybe I didn't get it the second time around. But I didn't feel as uh, as perplexed. I didn't didn't feel quite as confused. Maybe maybe that's because um, some of these themes have been like addressed i know i know more of life it's been it's been 10 years ish since i saw that movie 
Um, so maybe some of the character types that he's presenting um, were were totally foreign to me a decade ago. Um, but now, like it, like in the case of the master, that um, the the dynamic of kind of a, a fragile uh, person, like rudderless, uh, trying to find his place in the world, falling for the um, convincing uh, narcissistic. Uh, Lancaster Dodd, um, kind of a snake oil salesman, but um, not really realizing it and, 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 and falling for it. You know, th this is a pattern that I've, I've seen um, more, uh, more of uh, o over the last 10 years. So um, I think that movie felt uh, more relatable. Maybe, maybe it's harder for, for a young person to have enough experience to uh, relate to these movies. So your your education and your career, you think, have helped you, which is interesting because I don't think when Paul Thomas Anderson writes these things, like I don't, he, I don't think he doesn't have a a, mm -hmm. a PhD in anything. He's not a psychiatrist. And, and I, I don't mean to say it's like like my my education. It's I think just living living in this this world. I see. You, you know, like seeing these. Um, narcissistic people that take advantage of others and I, I guess you know I'm probably exposed to that a bit in the the medical training system you're um, you, you work with a bunch of different narcissistic supervisors and have to drink the kool-aid and think what they think and and practice as they do and then you you realize that uh, a lot of what they said was you know just just opinion and presented like fact um, so maybe, maybe it's partly related to my training but I think just more life experience in general there's a lot of ego out there yeah yeah and when and when i was 22 maybe I, I was too naive to to know that it was out there so i really appreciated there will be blood i watched it when it came out 2007 i think or 2008 and i'm not 2007 and you know liked it enough got it enough that one's accessible enough i think yeah yeah. Uh, and then caught it on TV a few years later, back when I had TV. And it was like the History Channel, Sunday Night's uh, History on Film oh, with, with Anne Medina. Medina. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was like in trance. Something's also kind of special when it's on TV, but I digress. Uh, and I remember just being like hungry for this movie and like wanting more and being disappointed when it was over, like really digging it. Um, and then sort of, as Adam would say, this critical second viewing of it. And sort of decided that Paul Thomas Anderson was was great, and hurt you know his next movie's coming out with Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Very excited about what this right. is going to mean and what this is going to look like. Couldn't watch it in cinemas. Waited and waited and waited. Finally, I had a copy, and I said, "Come over, we'll right. watch this. Great, it'll be this will change your life." <laughs> hey, and, sounds good. Yeah, and we watched it in my old apartment, this cramped room. It was winter, but the room got really hot. <laughs> Do you remember? I was just like sweating buckets because I closed the door. Oh, and I it, forgot about that. And uh, and it it was only two hours and twenty four minutes, but it just felt like forever. Yeah. It. Felt, oh yeah, yeah the, the heat would have been like wearing us out. It was at the end of the day, like at like a front end of the. It was very week. late. Yeah. I think it's yeah, like one yeah. a.m. and we're trying yeah. to so tired. Yeah. And the plot. Not in the right frame of mind for it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I and this brings me to a next topic like plot 
Some of his movies stick to a plot a bit better than others, I think. The Master is one where I think the plot sort of disappears Mm -hmm. halfway through, maybe in its third act. It's just sort of stuff happening. Right. And I find that very tedious. Did you find that the second time around watching it this time now? Yeah. I'm talking about there's like a whole montage where they're they're putting Freddy through the treatments. You know, he's got to walk back and forth from wall to wall. Yeah. Yeah. And they go out to the desert. Right. Like, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> you know? That's yeah. where I find that movie goes off the rails for me. What do you oh, think? Oh, yeah. So, I think, like, the the plot in There Will Be Blood, you can follow along. Right. And there's no shocks in the plot. But the master, if you look at it from, like, a character evolution, I'd sort of given up on following the plot. And from from watching just the characters do their thing, it felt more continuous. And I think on the first viewing and at that stage in movie watching, I was more invested in plot, trying to understand why why is this coming next. But I'd taken more of like a passive approach to this one. Like I'm just going to see what is thrown at me next. And there was, I think, a consistent thread of... Um, Freddie Quell um, and his reaction to the trauma of whatever he'd been through in the war, right? And and he was struggling with jobs, uh, getting fired, and then I think just happened across the ship uh, that they were going out on the what 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 are they what were they called the the um, the cause the, the cause that's it yeah i was gonna say the cult but i mean i guess <laughs> they are pretty close yeah. yeah so so then like he ends up on that boat by accident yeah but then the story of like the proximity that's developing to the to um uh lancaster dodd um makes sense and that's continuous and then he starts to get frustrated with lancaster dodd and it's also in keeping with that personality, I think, like the push-pull dynamic that he goes through with everybody in his life, he, he wants to be closer and then suddenly needs to get away from them. Like, he was, like, almost abusive and directive with Doris, um, telling her to, to wait for him, and then he just fucked off and never came back, and then many years later returns and is, like, surprised that she's married with children. So he... He, fairly, he is fairly consistent in his behavior and way of interacting with people. And that just surprising like, cut from when he's driving away in the motorcycle to be somewhere away from Lancaster Dodd, from a plot perspective, felt bizarre. But just from his development, felt more continuous to me. Why, why did he not go back to Doris after the war? I think maybe because he's uncomfortable. I think you've said it. I think you've already oh. kind of gotten to it. But I mean, specifically, like if you were to put right. on your psychiatrist oh, lens. Oh, yeah. Like he's uncomfortable it? with intimacy. I see. And as soon as the intimacy is developing with anybody, um, and this happens in a, a personalities that have developed as a response to trauma, like it's hard to trust people. And when you're getting closer to someone, it's, ah, uh, this, this can't be right. I've got to... I've got a scoot. Um, this just this feels uncomfortable. I have to leave them before they leave me, kind of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, he does it again with with Dodd and the uh, the cause. Right. 
takes off on his motorcycle. And then is this a pattern, right? Because then he comes back to Dodd and Amy Adams says, what did you think was going to happen by coming here? And they sort of reject him, right? Like you can't come crawling back sort of thing. Is that when they're like in England all of a sudden? Yeah. Right. Yes. All of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then, but then that made sense too. Like it was kind of jarring and shocking the first time I watched it. But then on the second viewing, you, you see like the subplot of the the cause is being rejected by whatever community they're in. Like they have to be out at sea. The cops show up in uh, Philadelphia. So I'm not surprised they sought refuge in England at that point. Um, but it, it is kind of jarring how suddenly they're in a, a new setting. Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson does that in his third act sometimes, or it's, it's almost like an epilogue where all of a sudden it's like a huge time jump or a, a jump in, in space. I'm thinking the end of There Will Be Blood. I think yeah. it's very abrupt all of a sudden. Yeah. Now he's in a mansion. Now, now he's in the a late mansion. 20s. The sun's grown up. Right. Um, um, I, I had a question back about uh, Dodd. This is it's like I'm speaking about myself in the third person. <laughs> Go for it, Dodd. Yeah, okay, Dodd. I mean, Dodd. I mean, um, it it just dawned on me. It was just an idea I had when watching it. I haven't really explored it through fully, but could Dodd and the cause be some sort of allegory or representation of medicine or of the healthcare field? Like, like oh. Freddie is clearly traumatized. Right. He probably needs a lot of like actual professional help. And that's sort of where the parallels end. I don't mean to say that Dodd and the cause are uh or that real life medical help is as hokum as as is what Dodd is doing. Some of it is. But maybe some of it isn't. Maybe in the fifties yeah. some of it certainly yeah. was. And it just sort of reminded me of, you know, this this person who's doing treatment, not getting any better. Um, it's it, Dodd is very clinical, very methodical. Uh, um, there's some conditioning there, obviously. I think is what they're kind of trying to do to him, right? Like as a way of dealing with his uh, behavioral outbursts. I, I'm not sure Dodd knows why he's doing it. I think Dodd's doing it to try and control Freddie and to sort of suppress his animal urges. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which may or not, but I think the the method of doing it must look very close to some um, sort of hypnosis, you know, sort of hip, hip, you know, the the, rep, the repetition. Um, anywho, it, right. very institutional. Right. And I wondered if this sort of looked like a patient uh, coming in for therapy and continuing to leave and relapse and leave and relapse oh. and coming back to somebody who's trying to help him but doesn't really have the tools to help him. Right. Not, not really sure. I don't know. if Did that ring any bells or now that I say it? Yeah. Does that trigger yeah, it? That, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a great point. What um, uh, kind of stood out to me was that like the medical system is very protective of this is our way of doing things, and anyone who's outside of the current medical narrative is like kind of kind of a heretic. Um, so, so it's really really important to have consistency in, in our messaging. And the when the police come to uh, the house in Philadelphia, they the charge is that he's like operating a medical school without a license, something like that. Yeah, he took some money from a. Yes, that's yes, yes, that's right. So, so I thought um, 
other than his methods, he's got like some of the um, practices uh, of the medical profession. Like he's very confident in the treatment delivered. He's frustrated by a patient deviating from the prescribed treatment. He acts like his way will 100% work, even though he doesn't really know that. Yeah. And it, it's just a bunch of hokum that he's uh, foisting on the patient and his followers. Um, but also, the, the followers are really invested in Lancaster Dodd, because either they think they've been saved by these methods, or they think they will be, or they know someone who has been. And the performative element of it is also part of the practice of medicine. You have to confidently act like um, what you're doing is really going to make a difference and that gets the buy-in from the patient that can lead to the placebo effect mm. so like I was thinking this walking back and forth touching the wall touching the window makes no sense <laughs> yet still Freddie went through a phase of being less violent and more controllable like why did that work <laughs> like what was he doing Mm. But maybe Freddie, you know, there was a bit of placebo there and he thought, well, I'm doing these things. I'm, I must be healed. I must be better. Does that kind of answer your question? I think so. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of the Ludovico treatment or from A Clockwork Orange, the sort of like uh, associative, uh, uh -huh. you know, they, uh -huh. he's seen violent images, he's hearing Beethoven and he's being tortured and right. therefore he's unable to have violent actions right. or sexual actions later. Right. I, I wondered if that's sort of what was uh, what Dodd was trying to do there. And, it, mm. and the whole thing just sort of reminded me of what a patient, a real-life patient, might they might look at their doctor the same way Freddie or we kind of look at Dodd. You know, like this authoritarian figure. What do you know? Yeah, spouting yeah. out all this gibberish. Right. Um, just wanting to control him. Yeah. So whether that, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that's accurate. And, and then, you know, this depiction of Dodd sort of reminds us that, you know, even the, the, the professionals in our own life are, are just human as well. Right. And are going to make mistakes and are going to sometimes say things that they don't always know what they're talking about. Right. Uh, or again, maybe sometimes, or that happened more often in the time period that the movie is set. Not sure. I don't. Uh, I think maybe that's woven in there. I I like how you were talking about uh, control, and I guess uh, I controlled the question there. It didn't quite answer what you'd asked. Um, the the don't worry, word... I cut right through it. I, I saw right through the bullshit. <laughs> perfect, no. perfect. My meth is working. Um, the the word we use for patients who don't take medications as prescribed is non-compliant. Mm. The patient it it is is treat is uh non med non-compliant with their medications so let's say you have to take pills three times a day and you forget to take your pills your label is non-compliant mm. or treatment resistant mm. which sort of implies like not getting along with the control program a deviant in some yeah. way yeah and and so of course like freddie wants to uh break out it's very common for teenagers uh with diabetes to sort of protest by stop taking their insulin in their teens and like the insulin works it's an effective therapy but they're so frustrated with being controlled by their parents by their doctors they say i don't care if it hurts me i just don't want to be told what to do 
right. and then they have to come back to it on their own to say all right i think this insulin was actually helping me what do you think the wrap-up is i mean uh, these movies i think are often mm. ambiguous um, right some more than others um but the master's one that isn't easy i think to put a toothpick in at the end yeah. and say this is what this is about at the end oh yeah yeah um, i would certainly suggest that freddie is not cured or really changed at all at the end he's sort of very close to where we found him yeah uh and, and dot as well so what do you, what do you what do you take away from the master um i <laughs> the, the the quick answer is i forget and then right. also part of part of why i didn't like the movie the first time we watched it was um i wanted to be left with a conclusion like there was a conclusion from there will be blood greed is bad you know like i could i could leave with something whereas the master i don't know what the conclusion was like what uh statement does this make about our society how can i live my life differently what have i learned there's none of there's that. none of that, none of that. No. but but that was still that was still okay. Like when it was done, my conclusion was the movie is now done. <laughs> I'm going to get something to eat. But I was okay I'm with that. Finished. It, oh, that's the rule. That, yeah, that was, that was quite the conclusion. You knew what to think then. But um, I was more at peace with the ambiguity this time around. Mm-hmm. Life feels more ambiguous to a 30-something than a 22-year-old who thinks he knows everything. I, I think... I think... Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are, I think they're sort of therapy for him. And we can get into what we know of his personal life or what we've read of his personal life. Um, But I got a strong sense in this movie that The Master was a bit about Freddie finding a family. Uh, We know that he doesn't have a family of his own. His father is dead. His mother is in an institution of some sort. Uh, His... Uh, aunt slash lover is somewhere we don't <laughs> only know three times and only three times um it, four and it's a problem um <laughs> so again he's alone right freddie's lonely we know this right away and in a weird way the cause sort of becomes this family unit for freddie right uh it doesn't work for him because of his issues uh, that aren't being properly dealt with but it reminded me a lot of boogie nights um which i also think is about family, uh, although an unconventional one. But uh, right. uh, Dirk Diggler, real name Eddie Adams, something like that. Ooh. I'll go for it. Sure. Okay, I'll if it's not it that, it's close to that. <laughs> um, bad home life. Right. Mother with problems. Yes, and and like often people's fam. I shouldn't say often, but sometimes families are formed in a very hurried way because. 17 18 year old is trying to get away from their chaotic disturbing home so they jump into a new family without giving it proper thought and, and often by marriage or something yeah eddie adams is that what you said i don't know i may have said yeah sure adam you said eddie. Eddie. <laughs> eddie adams you got it eddie adams uh has to leave home and who wouldn't his mother's awful and uh right finds himself as you say uh, swept up in this world as many many people do um this world on screen in Boogie Nights that Eddie Adams is pulled into, I think, well, might even be a bit safer or a bit more functioning than what real life people do a lot of the time when they're forced out of their homes and 
all of a sudden they're on the street or in a gang or what mm-hmm. have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, the results are sort of the same. Drugs are often a part of that culture, and uh, we see the downsides to it. But at the end of Boogie Nights, we have this sort of tracking shot, which doesn't narrow oh. it down. There's a ton of tracking shots yeah. of... Um, of, uh, them acting like a family, right? It that's was... right. Yeah, uh, Jack Horner is that Burt yeah, Reynolds yeah, character? Yeah, Jack Horner is sort of walking through the house, and we see everybody's there. Don Cheadle's there with his baby, and John C. Right. Riley's there, yeah. and Julianne Moore's there, and sort of yeah. the maternal figure. Right. And Roller Girl's in the kitchen doing something. Roller skating. Roller skating. So we, we get the, the, the family unit there. And I think that's an interesting one because I think, I think Paul Thomas Anderson's interested in this collection of misfits idea, mm-hmm. especially in Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. Had you seen Boogie Nights before no. uh, watching it? First, first time. And what did you think? Great. Like, a um, little, little creepy, a uh, little, little disturbing, um, but very compelling story great soundtrack um i thought like similar to many of the other movies they seem to have followed an arc of like this central powerful figure has everything going their way until about the halfway point yeah and then it's like these narcissistic people have their life and their success built like it's a it's a house of cards and then some card gets removed yeah. like i i thought it was so uh fascinating to watch the tension through boogie nights of like this style of making pornography is not forever and john c Riley like eloquently says like yeah i know i can't fuck forever <laughs> and like they keep saying that like you know that this is um a like big big money right now but it's not going to last forever yet they're living like it will last forever yeah and uh burt reynolds is like resisting the ask to shoot what, what like shoot directive videotape, videotape. videotape like yeah. no i'm i'm not doing that i'm supposed to be i make films they go to theaters but then it, it comes crashing down like i thought that was such a well done story yeah it, so it, i liked it it in many ways is the sort of classic hollywood tale right i uh mm-hmm. um or even even I got a lot of um, Scorsese when I watched it this time. I thought of Goodfellas, or um, The Departed, where you get right. the sort of young kid pulled into this world. Right. You know, uh, just Henry Hill and Goodfellas. I think you know meets uh, Paul Servino or Robert De Niro, and all of a sudden he's taken in. In The Departed, it's uh, Leo meets. Oh, Matt? oh no, I it's forgot. Matt Damon. It's Matt Damon meets Jack Nicholson and. It gets pulled into this world, which again can't sustain. Right, right. A, a drugs, money, power, fame, uh, greed. You know, it's uh, so. I thought it, it really had that arc, but it, it was about the world of pornography, which right. is a spin on it we haven't really seen before. Uh, Let me ask you this: what what do, what do you feel when Dirk is brought into this world for the first time is this like a oh this is creepy this kid's being taken advantage of he may be a minor yeah uh, or is yeah. it like oh good he belongs and he's getting what he wants he wants the corvette and he wants the the girls and the kung fu it it was it was mixed like yeah. it was both this is creepy 
and a nice coming of age like you're getting these things you want and like be careful that you don't get uh, chained to a lifestyle that you can't sustain long term like a lot of young people do when they're thrown when a lot of money's thrown at them yeah. but the sex itself was like a little bit uh, uncomfortable well I found that Boogie Nights really explored um, sort of the difference between glamour and reality uh-huh. um, I think we get some shots the opening scene is everybody at the club and oh, yeah. it's neon great, lights great opening scene yeah like all one, one take or something just like, like scorsese and goodfellas yeah, there's yeah. a very similar hmm yeah i don't know if anyone's made this comparison before uh anywho but then everybody leaves the club and we see their home life and it's right. so drab like william h macy comes home boring house wife shot very having flat, sex with someone else wife right? cheating on him right dirk diggler has to sneak home Right. Uh, and we see that it's all kind of come down. So reality is is kind of plain, kind of boring, kind of ordinary, or there's troubles. But you go to the club, and it's a, an escape. Yeah. And it's this fantasy, right? The world's kind of presented as this fantasy place with the the colors and the hair and the sparkles and the you know the lights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sort of spoke to the whole act, right? Like they're acting. It's a performance, and it's. It's sort of the industry, right? It's even turned lovemaking into an industry. The sex scene between Dirk and Amber Waves, Julianne Moore's character. Yeah, great name. Yeah. uh, Is seen through the camera. And we hear it along with the click, 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 of the camera mechanism doing what it's doing. And it's in rhythm with the camera. Chick, 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 chick. So it's like they've mechanized sex. You know, they've mechanized lovemaking. It's become... Uh, assembly line uh-huh. they've taken all all realism out of it all the passion out of it it's phony the right. whole thing's phony right yeah. the industry's phony the movie's phony this this life is is phony he's right. even changed his name it's not his real name anyway he's put on a phony persona as right. they all have um so again back to the whole idea of a point i don't know that there is a point to any of these movies so much as there is just like here's this slice of life here's this thing we all kind of go through Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. just just experiencing it and at the end a lot of his characters come out unchanged or you know at a spot that's very similar to where we first found them and yeah i think the point isn't there's not that message like you said about here's what to do or how to think or how to live in society it's just sort of here's what these people go through which is like I think when I wanted those things to be handed to me 10 years ago, like I, I realize, and including in, in my work, the importance of kind of being neutral and allowing a person to project whatever they are working on or, or struggling with onto you. Like these movies are a vehicle for that. What you're, What's on your mind, you can project and think about the story however you want and maybe take something from it. Yeah. But as we reflect back on that movie, I'm, I'm just thinking, what a, what a world. Like I was immersed in something that I, I never thought of before. It was so captivating. And then you're done and off you go. Like you've now left the world. Yep. It's over. It's just a- like life. Like yeah. there's no ending. There's no point where you're like, okay, this, uh, is, this is how to take away from this. Or this is, yeah. it's over now. Like it just keeps going. Yeah. So at some point you just got to call it quits. Yeah. 
Um, another theme I noticed in his movies as I was watching them this time is the idea of mentor and protege. Mm-hmm. Or uh, somebody who becomes fixated or obsessed with somebody else. So in yep. uh, The Master, you kind of get Dodd takes Freddy on as his protege. In Boogie Nights, you get the scene of, of Burt Reynolds seeing Mark Wahlberg for the first time. And there's a lot of camera movement. We know that there's a shift happening. This is an important moment. And then Burt Reynolds sort of says, like, I know I want this guy. And that kicks the plot off into motion. Uh-huh. Um, Heart Eight has the mentor. Does it? I haven't seen it. Oh yeah, it's like a down and out gambler. John C. Riley is taken under the wing of Philip. Phil- Hall. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mentor. Um, we get the obsessed party in Licorice Pizza, the person who becomes fixated on somebody else, and of course we certainly get it in uh, not in There Will Be Blood necessarily, but we certainly get it in Phantom Thread which is another one I recently watched. Uh, Phantom Thread, I liked it right away when uh-huh. I saw it. Yep, me watched, too. This was a critical second viewing this time. Uh, felt about the same. Mm-hmm. Liked it. Uh, personally, I find myself relating to Reynolds Woodcock quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and I to the Alma character. <laughs> Don't interrupt me when I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to do my work. Don't undermine my theme about mentor mentee. I can't be attacked like this. This is an ambush. I can't start the podcast with conflict. Um, no, but fussy. You must as well. You must have watched. Phantom Seen that in you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yes. No. I've got that. There's definitely that side of me that I routine. wish I didn't. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I I, I wish I wasn't like that, but. Well, you know, I think it. A lot of uh, intelligent people show that trait, and also you. And <laughs> well done. Well no, done. I think people who often are obsessed. I don't know if there's a type. Would you, yeah. Would yeah. You, what it, is the type? It's like cluster it's cl- something. Yeah, that's right. Okay. You listened. <laughs> cluster C. So he's like an obsessive compulsive personality disorder type, narcissistic as well. But the like the obsessive compulsive type, like highly rational, perfectionistic, can't delegate to anyone else, insistence on routines, sameness, inflexible. So yeah, that's very very common in medicine, by the way. Okay, all right. Yeah, and uh, Alma sort of shakes that up. Now, what? How do you define her? She's interesting. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Because she recognizes this in him. Yeah. She recognizes that he should loosen up or he'll need to loosen up in order for this relationship to work. Right. Um, And then she just decides to impose this on him, to take away his choice about this. It's kind of a... Uh Like, he's abusive, I would say, to her sometimes, verbally, for sure. Um, Yeah, he's cruel. Just so cruel. Yes, cutting. Mm. Yes, critical... But then she's abusive to him in this kind of bizarre way where she's intentionally poisoning him to get yeah. him into a vulnerable space. So what do you what is she is she sort of a secret villain of this story if you were to look at it from Reynolds's point of view? What do you think? Yeah, they they seem to deserve each other. Ah. You know, like like um I'm kind of borrowing from I, I watched this movie with my my mother earlier today. And I'm borrowing this critique from her that she was saying it's 
Um, they're equally toxic and their toxicity balances out to sustain their relationship. And I don't think like that's necessarily saying it's good or bad, but it's just that what makes them relate and come together. And they're both willfully participating in it. Like up to the very end when he eats the poisoned omelet. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Yeah. When he just points the fork at her and we know he's, he's figured it out. Right. Um, why do you say Alma's toxic? Oh, like... Um, Other than the, the poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite literally toxic. <laughs> yeah. I think the first viewing, I just saw her as a victim who had one way to make the relationship stay together, which was the poisoning. But but she's also toxic by, I think she's she's quite like petulant and imposing herself on him just as much as he's imposing himself on her. Like the scene with the where she's making her breakfast and being loud, scraping the toast, cutting the butter. Like he's so frustrated by that. But then later later on she's quiet, and then even later on she's doing it loudly. Like, I've won, now I can do this my way. So fuck you, I'm going to be as loud at breakfast as I want. And and she's also, like, um, when she wants to go out dancing on New Year's, and he says no, and then she just goes anyway. She's, like, kind of flirting with that doctor. Like, I think it's sort There's nothing wrong going out dancing if your partner doesn't want to, but I think they're sort of implying in that movie that it's more than just dance that she's up to she's having other like appetites satiated when she goes out so i think that's part of the toxicity and also that she's like she's she's choosing to be with someone like that that like that's partly toxic well yeah that's sort of the big question is like she's taking it upon herself to change him right and, right, and not right. in the sort of way that a lot of abused partners tend to, where they think they can change the person. Like, she's quite actively engaging in some subterfuge <laughs> here yeah. to, to get what she wants out of him. Yeah. But I feel like the movie presents that the entire time as a good thing. Like, I, I, whether we choose to read it that way or not, I almost always feel that the movie... I I feel that the movie always tends to side with Alma. And it's interesting that yeah. you and your mom saw some more manipulative characteristics in her. Because you're right, right, I think when she flirts with the doctor, she knows that he doesn't care for that doctor. Yes. And is she only doing it to arouse his uh-huh. jealousy? Uh-huh. Or, uh-huh. Uh, and, and so that, you know, is that the best way of dealing with a problem like that? I don't know. The movie seems to suggest it always works. That she needs to do something to sort of shake him out of this right. space he gets in, his mental cage he gets himself into. Right. It's just an interesting, yeah. different yeah. reading that I had. Right. I. I don't know. I don't know if there's ever a time in the movie when we are meant to question Alma's motives. Oh, yeah. Like, like she's she's a sympathetic character. On the first viewing for me, but the second time around, I'm I'm left asking the question like, no one's holding a gun to her head to stay in that relationship. 
like her toxic choice, as you said, is to try to change him and control him. She could just go as soon as she has no voice and they're not equals, they're not partners. Find someone better. Uh-huh. Don't be stuck trying to change and conquer this guy that's set in his ways. You're, you're setting yourself up for, for misery by uh-huh. sticking around. Uh-huh. So I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for her. It's just like this is how she reacts to this controlling, cruel guy. And there's nothing good or bad about it. It's just, well, no, I am saying it's bad. I, I, I just don't see it as like the, she's a member of the French resistance or something fighting occupied, the, the, the occupying Nazis. She's, she's part of it. She's like a co-conspirator in this awful plot of the two being together. <laughs> That's true. She chooses to stay with it. She chooses to get married to him, knowing mm-hmm. all the while that this is... I just, mm-hmm. it's its a bold and daring choice, one that I don't think would work in real life, but the movie seems to, at least in my view, present the idea that this is actually in a warped way kind of what he needs. I feel like that's, when I watch it, that's the yep. message I think the movie's yeah. trying to say, is that he's trying too hard to be strong, he's trying too hard to be God of this fashion world, to be in control. He says to her, uh, it's my job to give you breasts if I choose to, very much like maker sculpting, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. man out of clay. Um, that's how he wants to live. And I think the movie, maybe it's, uh, again, there's some autobiographical parts of it. Maybe Paul Thomas Anderson himself is a bit controlling and he recognizes that. This is all speculation on my part. But I think he sort of knows that he's got to be knocked down. His ego's got to be bumped down a few pegs. Mm-hmm. And he feels, he actually can feel quite content being vulnerable with her yeah for a time for a time before reverting back yeah and then like needs to have it cyclically or else he'll get revert back to his old ways but you you said he needs her but i guess it's i would my my disagreement would just be that he thinks he needs her like that's the only way that he's going to change right now but it's still not a healthy one like it's it's um the only way you're going to give up your lifestyle is to be poisoned and physically dependent (laughs) on someone for 24 hours and then like soften up a bit and not need to be so strong like he needs to change but not in this way i see you know like i that's why i wouldn't say he needs her he's just decided he needs yeah Yeah, and again, I obviously don't think it would. Would that work in real life? Would your body be able to continually be poisoned like that, oh. or would you develop some like long-term problems, or I, or an immunity yeah, to the poison? You're I, I not a toxicologist. Not no, not not a real doctor. Yeah, <laughs> but I it seemed it seemed realistic enough to me. Like similarly to taking um, some some drug or some poison, not poison, some drug some antibiotic that makes you feel nauseous once it comes out of your system you're good to go and um, what do you think uh, how would you other than the cluster c uh-huh. uh in, in, in more of a uh, psychoanalysis uh-huh. uh, you know slipping into freud for a second yeah what would you what would you say his 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 backstory is things i noticed i mean obviously the mother aspect of it um i also noticed that he's very defensive 
He he mentioned he evokes uh, the metaphor of battle quite a bit whenever she challenges him. He says, "This is an ambush, or I'm being attacked." Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he Good he point. says, um, "I have to be." What does he say? I wrote it down. Uh, I he has to be defensive, or someone will come in the night and take his corner of the room. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So what do you What do you attribute that to? What do you think's oh. going on in his past? And we can talk about Cyril. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it seems like generally that type of personality was not given enough. I think the term is like mirror uh, transference. So not like seen with po- uh, uh, unconditional positive regard from an attachment figure that looks back with smiling eyes at the infant and says, you're good enough, I love you exactly as you are. And in the absence of that growing up, you need to um, d- like develop your uh, alternative to that through maybe like external good, external validation, being extremely defensive. Um, and, and like he's very thin-skinned. He, like you could call him a thin-skinned narcissist when the that lady that wealthy lady towards the end still buys the dress from the house of uh woodcock woodcock thank you still buys the dress but just she looked somewhere else and he's like almost brought to tears yeah so it's it's just like a a really fragile house of cards very fragile that that the defense is is built on and the only way that i'm good enough is if i'm perfect if i'm successful um and never like like uh, never make any mistakes and other people need to adore me because at at my core i wasn't like adored and loved enough by mom and dad and we don't we don't get any direct at least not that i maybe i missed something i didn't get any direct uh implication that the mother was a demanding woman right um, but but cyril is y- yeah so controlling yeah and in many ways is sort of the manipulating him as well yes there's sort of these people around him that sort of knows how to work within him right or alongside him and what to do and what not to do but she's not afraid of him and she you get the idea that she's doesn't defensive of the other of his girlfriends right and and sort of coaxes him into getting rid of them yes because she wants to be the only woman Yep. in his life so yeah. could, could we infer that Cyril must have learned that from mother yeah so two two thoughts um, don't let me forget uh, that I had two things to say on that um, one is that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree so yeah you're right she might have learned that from mom and then point number two is that um, if someone is healthy and expresses their needs verbally like um, uh, Dodd, I want to stay at this hotel, uh, and then Dodd responds saying, "No, uh, that's that's unrealistic. Uh, I'll be frustrated if we choose that one." Okay, sounds good. Let's choose something else. That I think that was healthy communication, but the unhealthy version is I say, "Dodd, I want to stay at this hotel, and you don't feel comfortable expressing your needs, so instead you go behind my back and privately message Ashan." privately message Josh, maybe send me a passive-aggressive message, manipulate in response. So the only way to get through to someone who's like sort of disordered, manipulative themselves, 
is to manipulate in return. So I think that's the only way Cyril is heard by um, Reynolds, and that's the only way Alma is heard. He doesn't speak directly. It's uh, manipulation and passive-aggressive ways of communication. And he's such a, a sort of man-child right. that, that they have to sort of mother him right in a, in a way i feel like and like right. often with a child you can't be that direct and be like They're okay, too okay fragile. little timmy yeah uh, i don't want to go to this you know oh okay mom like no <laughs> you know the yeah. child's gonna throw a fit so i feel like he's sort of this adult version of that where he's going to throw a fit his fit's going to look like a bunch of insults and cutting remarks yes. cruel cutting remarks best just leave him alone yes yes the like these incredibly successful people you would think if they've mastered costume design uh that they're just they've mastered everything um but they can actually be like the development in one sphere can come at the expense mm. of development in other spheres so like there are some residents in their fifth year these are people in their like late 20s and early 30s before their licensing exam to become independently practicing physicians that move back in with their parents so that their parents can make their meals and do their laundry. Yeah. Which is pretty fucking regressed. <laughs> like, you should be able to do that shit when you're 29 or 30. But the... Or 19. Or, or <laughs> yes. But the, like, the family feeds into it like, oh, my... My son's a doctor, so he doesn't know how to cook or uh, do laundry, but, but he's a doctor and he uses all of his resources to study, but then kind of like loses it in, in other domains. So I think uh, he's um, just so primitive in other areas of his life, but it, like incredibly talented, uses all of his time to create these. Never in, cooks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Never exactly. doesn't know how to take care of himself. Yeah. 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 Speaking of toxic relationships, mm-hmm. let's uh, let's jump forward to Licorice Pizza, okay. which you and I just watched a few weeks ago. Right. Um, what the heck's going on there? So so right. I didn't I haven't watched it a second time. I don't I didn't I didn't really like it too much. Same. Um, so I don't I'm not going to rush to see it again a second time. But I know you and I talked about this already. The two main characters. Whose characters' names I forget, but it's, yep, it's Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim are, mm-hmm. are the two stars. What are we supposed to feel about them? I feel like yeah. the movie wants us to think that they're cute and that this whole thing is kind of romantic, and we want them to see them get together. But does the movie achieve that? Right. I. Did you want to see those two get together? Like yes and no. Like right. it's. I was thinking about this, and a lot of the characters in Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, like it's a toxic relationship at its core, right? Yeah. And you don't know if you want them to be together or not. Like, um, do do you want uh, Dirk Diggler to be with uh, Amber Waves or with Roller Girl? I don't know. Do do you want uh, John C in Hard Hard Eight, like um, John C. Riley with? Um, Gwyneth Paltrow's character it's a toxic relationship but just something about the singles the young singles in a movie you want to 
see them end up together, just like the main character you want their interest to work out, whether it's a hero or anti-hero in any old movie. You want things to work out for Don Draper in Mad Men, <laughs> even though he's like probably a bad, flawed guy. You, and you, maybe it's the same thing in Licorice Pizza. That we just see these two young people. One likes the other, so part of you, the, ro the romantic and all of us, wants to see the two together. Yet there's warning sign after warning sign. Do not enter. Don't pursue <laughs> this relationship. Yeah. So maybe that's a comment on relationships, that there's like some biological drives that bring people together despite all the warning signs. Uh, yeah, I... I, I feel like the movie was structured like a typical romance, a mm -hmm. typical will they, won't they. Yeah. We see them come close, and then we see that like a, a slight guffaw leads to something bigger. Um, just like Reynolds, Woodcock, and Alma, these two are also both pretty toxic. They both, yeah. uh, you know, uh, engage with other people to make the other one jealous. Instead of the healthy communication, like right. you know, um, right. this goes on throughout the whole movie. I think we're supposed to think it's endearing. I think Paul Thomas Anderson looks at these characters he's written and says, "Isn't this sweet?" In kind of a screwed up sort of a way, it's going to be a wonky world out there. When you leave home, things are going to be topsy turvy. It's not going to be a perfect. Uh, I wanted to say Romeo and Juliet, but that's not perfect either. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not going to be your typical Hollywood romance where everybody fits together really nicely and it looks perfect and everybody approves. I think he's drawn to these outsiders, these outcasts, and things. Just like we said about family, right? In Boogie Nights, these porno actors and producers kind of get together in this weird version of a family. I think he wants us to think that about these two, but I could not get over the age difference. Yeah. He's supposed to... She's 25 and he's 15. Right. Albeit a mature 15-year-old. Right. Considering... And, I, and I, I almost think that they have him doing these very adult things, like starting up businesses and stuff, so that he seems like a very adult 15-year-old so that we can stomach this relationship a little more. Whereas if he looked like your typical high schooler 15-year-old... You'd be like, what the hell is, like, what am I, this is like Lolita in reverse. Like, what am I watching here? This is kind of bizarre. Right. So that's what, the age difference, and just as you said, I didn't really find either of them likable enough yeah. to root for them. So even though the yeah. structure of the movie has imprinted onto our brains, like, hope these two get together. Like, we just want some sort of conflict resolution. We're all, yes. we're all, desi we all desire it, and that's why we go to see movies, to see some sort of conflict get resolved. So hmm. we're hardwired to want to see that, but this was a strange experiment in that I also didn't, like I didn't, I did for the movie's sake, but I didn't given the particulars of the situation. Yeah, that's. Do, do you like like well I don't know? Said. Did you like yeah. Did you like her as a character? Like she the whole time you're kind of like, what are you doing? Right, like she's she she's leads got him on the whole movie. Correct, but like she's got some sex appeal, like that draws you in to her. And like you, you she's kind of girl next doory. Yeah, a little, a little. You you think that you might like a girl like that in real yeah. life? You can see how he has a crush on her. Yes, right. Yes, um, but at the same time, like she's cruel to him. Like she's she puts him down like so often, and it's like played off as as cute, but it's 
like actually kind of awful and then they're both engaging in these side flings to make the other jealous like when she's in the restaurant with um oh who's she with sean penn having dinner with with sean penn and like talk about tangential what the hell right that yeah. scene is just yeah out of left oh field. yeah 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 and the, the bike and falling off the bike so, so quickly, just because you mentioned the motorcycle, uh-huh. I saw a huge parallel between Philip Seymour Hoffman riding the motorcycle in the desert and Sean Penn riding his motorcycle through the golf course. So there's something about guys on motorcycles just like brrr, tearing it up. Right. He, he must like, Paul Thomas Anderson must like that image for some uh-huh. reason. Anywho, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, what was, so what was your question? Like I, Do you like her? Do you like, there's like she's appealing but overall, don't like her, toxic, stay away, don't get involved. <laughs> right. But the young person isn't going to think that way, and they're just going to be drawn. Well, I shouldn't speak for all young people, but <laughs> like, probably is just going to be, you know, he's like, can, nah, can I see your us. boobs? Can I touch your boobs? Like, right. <laughs> not us. Yeah, like he's just, he's drawn to her, you get it. He doesn't have the wisdom of like, not a good idea. That will come with time, hopefully. And maybe he's not supposed to. Is that the point of this movie? That they're just young and... Right. But then she's not so young. So that's what I think kind of uh-huh. makes it weird. If it's if it's a dazed uh-huh. and confused type movie or where it's just young people, then that's one thing. Or even right. like an almost famous, this kind of had that feel to it. Yeah. Didn't see. Yeah. But uh, again, I just keep coming back to the that she's like an adult she's mm-hmm. living at home she's not so she's an immature 25 year old and he's a mature yes. 15 year old yes i guess that makes it somewhat palatable but i th- and i think just like we go to a movie hoping for a happy ending the home team it like the football team that you go to training camp with is gonna win at, in remember the titans you you want to see the couple get together. It's like part of the archetype of movies. Yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson turns a lot of these upside down. Like, why am I rooting? It makes you ask, why am I rooting for this couple? Mm. Why am I rooting for this guy? Why am I rooting for Daniel Plainview? Why am I rooting for uh, Reynolds Woodcock and wanting to see him get together with Alma? But we're talking about licorice pizza and look, and <laughs> no, look what I did. You're absolutely right. No, you're, we want to see we want to see things work out. We right. want to see people get together and make it work. And maybe that's like a negative effect of Hollywood in general on relationships. Perhaps. That it just yeah. it's exciting, dramatic, and beautiful, and perfect in every movie, and always yeah. works out. Yeah. And these movies are a bit more mature and adult, and they show us. There are problems, yet people get together. Did you watch Punch Drunk Love? Recently? I did, and that—that's the other one of. Okay, like, so can you talk yeah. about? Because I haven't seen it in a long time, and I don't remember it too well. There's a piano or something. Can you? Uh... It's a harmonium. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it, but it's. <laughs> well, it, now I that's understand. That's part of the the joke that <laughs> yeah. someone calls it a harmonium, but okay. it's a piano. Yeah. Um, so maybe walk me through Punch Drunk Love a little bit. I know it's a bizarre love story. Yeah. Um, what? How does this fit in with the the point we're we're talking about? So, um, if only Adam Galloway, the uh, the Adam Sandler lookalike, was here. He <laughs> he, sh- he, sh- he sure <laughs> enough said that. Uh, I guess this <laughs> episode won't get published now. This um, is this is yet another. That would have been a yet another good Halloween costume 
for Adam Galloway. I have a list of Halloween costumes. I just want, he's like, like I want to make him my muse and just dress him up for Halloween. But he, he doesn't like Halloween, so he won't do it. He won't let me. He doesn't like Halloween. No, he doesn't like Halloween. You'd think movie people would like Halloween. Uh, I he's and it, it's Jamie's birthday right around that time, so he's often yes, unavailable. That's and right. That's understandable. But if he's ever on board with Halloween, I dress I, him up as uh, McLaren racer Danny Ricardo. But if we're not doing Punch Drunk Love, well, Adam Sandler. That's another. Lots one. of characters. Yeah, Freddie look Mercury. It up. He'd Danny, be a great Danny Ricardo. He'd look be it a up. Great Freddie Mercury. He likes yeah. Rambo. I would do Rambo. Yeah. I would do Rocky. John McClane he likes. I got a great John McClane <laughs> costume. Anyway, anyway, anyway. And now Adam Sandler, the blue suit with the red tie from Punch Truck. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Anywho. <laughs> We're coming for you, Adam. Yeah. So go ahead. On, uh, Punch Truck. Okay. Life. So, uh, like, kind of a chaotic plot again, so I forget it already. But, uh, but <laughs> I think... stuff happening. Stuff happens, yeah. and two people end up to get together that maybe shouldn't. <laughs> it's the socially awkward business owner uh, that they sell. It's so bizarre. It's like these plungers with the fancy glass handles. Like, why? Anyway, <laughs> he's got this, like, he's awkward. He doesn't like being around people. And then has these anger outbursts where he, like, smashes the window at his sister's place, destroys right. the restaurant bathroom that he goes to on his date. Kind of Freddy Quell-ish. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then she sort of takes sympathy as like, he's this broken, anxious guy that if I just love him enough, he'll be okay. And um, he like turns her down and then goes to Hawaii where she's having some conference or something. And they end up together in the end. But she seems nice like you don't know of any problems with her there's nothing toxic about her but she's willfully entering into this relationship with this guy who's like kind of scary and dangerous and yeah awkward yeah but you're also kind of rooting for them because they're they've both expressed romantic interest in each other they're the objects of the movie and they come together as per the typical narrative do you think Paul Thomas Anderson thinks that it's like okay to be violent and angry and and have these outbursts because he's so sympathetic with them? Like like oh. Freddie Quell, you see how lonely Freddie Quell is. Um, you see, it, it's mm. almost like it's explained. You know, right. he's got some trauma. He's got some heartbreak. I think Adam Sandler, you know, you feel his sisters are kind of nasty, right? You feel sympathetic for him. He's constantly mm. under attack from them. Mm. Is he, Does it feel, again, and we can't know what he's thinking. It's just when you watch the yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. does it feel justified? Does it feel like we understand these characters' frustrations and that we're supposed to feel like, yeah, I'd react that way too? Or are we supposed to be a bit on edge and not really know what to think about them? I was leaning more to that one, but that's probably me projecting my own, like, fear of these, like, toxic individuals. Don't get too close to someone like that, because they are hurting walls right now, but eventually they'll turn it on you. Uh. So, but but maybe the question is about Anderson. I don't know. Maybe he's well, I, I, sorry, projecting I said, them as, yeah. like, or p- portraying them as um, people we should feel sympathy for. I don't know. Did you feel sympathy for Freddie Quell? Or were you f- like... Uh... No, I don't. <laughs> okay. I don't. 
Okay. Um, I, and I, I wish I'd seen... Did you? No. No. No, I was like creeped out by him and like kind of scared of him and didn't want anyone to end up close with him. I felt bad for that girl who he was having sex with at the end. Like, oh God, what are you doing? Like, don't get involved with this guy. Yeah. So I didn't feel sympathy. I'd be really curious what the... Like most people feel about these characters and look at this like it's it's a great thing that he's got the created these rich characters that we don't make the default assumptions about right like we're we're debating do we have sympathy for them or not yeah interesting yeah adam sandler do you have more sympathy for his character again again like a complicated character gotta think about it a lot but probably on balance no Daniel Plainview, I can see where he's coming from, but on balance, no. Paul Dano's character, uh, some sympathy for him, but on balance, no. Like, a rich tapestry of characters that are all kind of flawed and dangerous, and I, I'm happy to watch them from afar, yeah. but don't want feel drawn to be close to them. I do remember the general feel, what you're describing. Like, like they unease. get together, but yeah. I didn't feel anything. I wasn't like, oh, so happy. I've seen other movies, uh-huh. romance uh-huh. movies, uh-huh. where I'm much happier to see people get together under strange circumstances. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind comes to mind. Totally yeah, different director yeah. and it, yeah, yeah. Jim Carrey and Kate. Wins. But they're much more endearing and but but still complicated, you know, the, the, the nature. But I remember watching Punch Drunk Love and just being like pretty alienated by it. I was very young; I was in high school still, right? And just didn't get it. And I remember not really liking anybody. Is that still sort of the case? Exact, exactly yeah. right. And like the ending of all of these movies, like I walked away feeling. Well, I didn't walk away. I sat on my couch and ordered the next one. But I like I finished all of them thinking like, ugh, like I I don't feel good about this partnership, but it happened. Like, Phantom Thread, oh, I don't feel great about this. So unsettled at the end of uh, There Will Be Blood. Didn't feel great about the partnership in Heart 8. Like, really common theme throughout. Well, let's, in the interest of time, let's uh-huh. jump to uh-huh. There Will Be Blood. Okay. And I'm happy to wrap it up on this one. We didn't talk about Inherent Vice. Oh, fuck. What the fuck was going on <laughs> right. with Inherent exactly. Vice? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's sort of the one everybody ignores. Um, yeah, rightly so. I think there's stuff to mine in there, but I'll save it for another time. Um, is Daniel Plainview the example of what, what happens to somebody when they're alone? So we talked earlier about mm-hmm. getting together, and these movies always seem to present that as toxic as the relationships are, it's better to be together than to be apart. Oh. These movies all sort of show what happens when somebody's left alone. Uh, how frustrated they become, how lonely they become, how, you know, uh, Reynolds Woodcock, Freddie Quell, Adam Sandler's character, um, Cooper Hoffman, they don't want to be alone, and they sort of fixate on getting to be with somebody else. Uh Uh-huh. But Daniel Plainview doesn't, romantically. Right. Right. He tries, as you said, he tries to turn H.W. into a mentor. He tries to turn Eli into, not a mentor, or a, sorry, a mentee, I should say. A dis, he doesn't like that Eli is not a disciple of his. Yes. That Eli yes. is sort of in his way. Yeah. Doesn't, yeah. Has no tolerance for someone in his way, like Reynolds Woodcock. Right. Like Lancaster Dodd. Right. No tolerance for challenge. Oh, or, yeah, that guy who, excuse yes. me, excuse me. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yes. 
all of them very fragile egos, right? Yes. How dare you challenge my ultimate mm-hmm. rule? And that's Daniel Plainview. And but no love interest at all, and he becomes like a literal psychopath by the end of it. Yeah. So I wonder. I don't know. I just again just came up with this now. Is that is that Paul Thomas Anderson sort of saying, "Look what a life of total isolation." will do to you oh okay my my first thought to that is like you said he becomes a psychopath oh but i would say he was always a psychopath but didn't have the same resources to get away with it i see like he had to act nice i see to get people to sell him the land the performance but but he was always a psychopath the way he acted like such a I have I've met some of you in this town and I look forward to meeting each and every one of you <laughs> and y- you know on the second viewing that that's a lie. It's a snake he oil just salesman. he just yeah. wants to tap the well and yeah. and then fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he was always this horribly cruel person. Yes. Um and and at the end he was rich enough and I and uh had made enough money that he was okay to brutally beat Eli to oh. God, that was so <laughs> creepy. <laughs> I love it. I'm finished. Is, is Eli running away at one point and he hucks the pin Throw. and it knocks him down? Yeah. Yeah, great <laughs> aim. I, yeah. I think there's a roster spot on the Blue Jays after Ryu got injured. That's that's quite a fastball. <laughs> Sports, everybody. You don't hear much of it on the viewer's cast. There you go. Well, I, don't, I don't enjoy this <laughs> sports part. <laughs> You've alienated our normal listeners. Sorry, everybody. No all, more sports. All five I'll stop. Of them. Sorry. Um, <laughs> thank you, five. We love you. Um, now, are there moments of sympathy? Can we feel sympathetic for Daniel Plainview? Is there a human being in there somewhere? Not again. Not speculation. Does the movie present that there's a human being in Daniel Plainview? Sometimes. Hmm. So the. The moments that come up to me would be when the guy, like I guess H.W.'s dad has that thing fall Gunk. on him in the well. Yeah. And then Daniel Plainview takes him in. Yes. Um, that seems like him being a good person, like looking after this vulnerable baby. But then at the end, was he just saying it out of spite or was he saying the truth that I just kept you around to have a cute face to buy land? So people often point to the scene on the train with a baby H.W. And no one else is around, so it's not a performance. And Daniel's looking at the baby and and H.W.'s reaching up and touching his face. And Daniel's smiling. So there is this sort of tender moment between Daniel and an infant H.W. that I think we're meant to. To I put see. a lot of stock in. I, I think see. that's an extremely important part. Right. But you tapped into it as well. My impression of the ending was always that he sang this out of spite. Okay. That just like all of these other Paul Thomas Anderson characters, when they're yeah. injured, they attack. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. R- yeah. Reynolds, yeah. Lancaster, yeah. Dodd, yeah. they all do it. Mm-hmm. So I think he's okay. extremely offended that H. he's w. going says, to mexico i don't want to be anything like you right is he going to work for a competitor or something or i thought he was i probably got it wrong i thought he was going to make his own company in mexico but right. maybe he was joining another company in mexico okay either way not... now you're my direct competition right that yeah. was oh that's why okay that's the line i'm thinking of 
Um, I want to hear it from you, not your dog. Woof, 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 woof. Oh, <laughs> so cruel. <laughs> um, and here's the part that always struck me. And I'm glad I finally have a platform to discuss this openly. I always thought it was interesting that as HW's leaving, he's yelling at him, you're a bastard from a basket. I think that's the line, right? Yeah. Bastard from a basket! And he's yelling it. And HW's gone. He's walking away. The interpreter's walking away. HW's deaf. Oh, yeah. So he's yelling this, but he knows his son can't hear him. So who's he yelling that to? And I always took that as he's convincing himself of this oh. as much as he's trying to convince his son of this. He's in denial, you know what I mean? He's trying to say this to make himself feel better. Like, I never cared about you anyway. You don't mean anything to me. Oh. When in fact, it's quite the opposite. Great point. That's how I always took that. That was scene. totally over my head both times. I mean, Great you, could, point. you could just say it's just an emotional reaction and people just yell. But I always thought sort of symbolically, you can yell as loud as you want, Daniel. No one's, no yeah. one's listening to you. No yeah. one can hear you except yourself. Right. And, uh, and even then, the immediate murder of, of Eli. I got the brothers' names right, right? There's Eli... Paul is the one who gets the five hundred dollars. Paul at the was beginning. the first one, right? Yeah. yeah. Even the murder of Eli, I sort of thought I interpreted it as Daniel's sort of suicide in the sense that, like, is he going to go to jail after this? The butler comes down and catches him, and he sort of, "I'm finished." Is to me sort of like he's just like, well, "I don't care anymore." Like he's right. he's given up. Right. He's lost his son. There's nothing. He's now murdered his enemy. Right. Whatever. He doesn't care anymore. Right. His life. I'm finished. His life's over. That's how I. That's how I interpreted that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that that makes sense. Like, um, when they're trying to buy the uh, land from him in Little Boston, he, like, just before that meeting, he'd said. Um, I want to make so much money that I can leave this and never have to deal with it again or something something like that, right? I hate people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Never have to deal with people again. Right. And then at that sit-down... competition down, in me. Yes. Yeah. That, okay. And so the competition relates to Eli and winning the competition... Winning, yeah. in quotation marks. <laughs> um, so, uh, we're... Where was I going with that? Yeah, he says, he I want to make enough money that I can get away. He sits down to the meeting. They offer him enough money to get away from people. Yeah. And his response is, well, then what, what will I do with myself? Mm. Like if I take this money and give up my job, I got nothing. What am I going to do all day? My raison d'etre is to make more money, expand the empire. I see. So that like he's driven by expand as much as I can and finally conquer this um, thorn in my side of the Eli. And now that I've beaten him, yeah, there's nothing there's else. Nothing there's left. nothing more to live for. I've, I've given up all my humanity. My son hates me. Yeah. I've disowned him. Yeah. That was, that was the shred of his... And he, and he tries to develop a relationship with the brother. Like... The, the supposed yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? He, 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 that speech, they're sitting on the porch or something like that. And you know, I don't want to see anyone succeed. You know, I want to be you know, with these people. Uh, that's, that is him opening up 
right. no sense, right? He's yeah. talking to because he thinks this is a family member. And then, as, again, when it's, when it's <clears> proven to be... The first time you a, see any vulnerability in him. Yeah. Yeah. But when it's a deceit, he's so angry he murders him. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not just yeah. get out of here. It's, he shoots him in the head. So uh, just yeah. so defensive, um, so yeah. betrayed. Yeah. That he, he... Then I think, you know, every time that happens, he regresses even more. Right. And I can't trust anybody. I also think there's right. some pain in his face when he puts HW on the train and sends him away. And yeah. HW's trying to, and he's like ignoring it, right? He's, yeah. <laughs> and this is something we never talked about so far yet is the performances. Right. Say what you will about Paul Thomas Anderson's plots or his, his characters or what he's trying to, but he's, he either picks actors who know what they're doing or he's able to get great performances out of uh-huh. people. It's always a powerhouse, a tour de force yes. of performances. Yeah. Um, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously, but to use like yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. And an excellent use of Joaquin Phoenix. Uh-huh. E- even though I didn't know what the fuck was going on in uh, Inherent Vice, yeah. I was still like amazed watching doc sportello like it's, <laughs> it's still an incredible performance whatever is the point of it <laughs> doc and... may not be a do-gooder but he does good <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember any lines but that's believable but yeah in my limited preparation for this i read some imdb thing that was like the signatures of pt anderson are uh long takes yeah use of source lighting i don't know what that means is that just like the lights from the disco or um yeah well, instead of having artificial lights yeah on whatever's it? in the scene is the thing lighting the scene okay so it's okay. the sun or it's a lamp or it's but you can see it in the scene and it's also lighting okay it. Yeah. so it was those two and then the third said um incredible uh acting performances and and i also thought like well that's not really him he's not the actor but it the fact that it's a common thread, you're right. Like powerhouses, incredible performances. Yeah. So does would you say like what? How do you bring that out of your actors as as a film person? I don't. The, <laughs> <laughs> what's do you think? Like who gets the credit for that? That's uh, an age old question, uh, and it and it differs. So mm. uh, I remember after making the movie Fences, Denzel directing the movie Fences, Denzel said in an interview. Um, quite curtly, like I don't direct the actors. I don't tell them what to do. That's their job. I cast people that yeah. know what they're doing, and I trust that they're going to come and know what they're doing. So as a, for what it's worth, as a director, that's what Denzel said. He doesn't tell the actors what to do. He trusts them. Okay. Whereas I think more hands-on directors would get in there. Oh, and, right. But when you, like, these guys are pros. And when you watch Joaquin Phoenix during the processing scene of the master. Oh, yeah. Like not blinking. Yeah, don't blink and yeah. all that. His reactions are so... And, and again, psychologically, like... It's so nuanced. Like how he smiles when he's too embarrassed to say something that he wants to say. Like you must see that all the time, right? When faced with an... Un- uncomfortable yeah. question people will laugh or he'll start fiddling with things or at one point he slaps himself in the head a bunch of times yeah and it's all to sort of like distract himself from what he's feeling 
Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's Paul Thomas Anderson or whether that's Joaquin Phoenix knowing what to do, but either way, I think there must be a synergy. Mm. They okay. Joaquin Joaquin yeah. Phoenix must yeah. know exactly what Freddie Quell is going through. What Wes uh, Wes Anderson? I don't know how many have I done that? <laughs> have I called it's just him? just me. P. T. Anderson. Uh, they must know exactly what they're talking about. And same thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh-huh. Daniel Day-Lewis. I feel like when Paul Thomas Anderson writes Daniel Day-Lewis a character, Daniel Day-Lewis is like, I know exactly what you're doing here. Right. And I'll know exactly how to do this. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I Mentioning Daniel Day-Lewis, I thought, like, before rewatching these this week, I thought both Phantom Thread and uh, There Will Be Blood have incredible performances from Daniel Day-Lewis but such different characters is what I'd believed in my mind for many years. Yeah. And now watching those two movies like within two <laughs> days, I'm like, they're the exact same guy. <laughs> Just one has an incredible English accent and one has a Whatever hulky <laughs> uh, um, American accent for, for an Irish actor. But um, I guess it's knowing that I can get this performance out of this person for this role and... Yeah. They must both be perfectionists, yeah. right? Yeah. Like Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day Lewis. So when they write these perfectionist, difficult, they must characters, know it takes one to know one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It takes two to know one. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking about Daniel Plainview, uh, there will be blood has my favorite scene from any Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Maybe my my favorite scene from a lot of movies. Do you have a favorite scene or favorite scenes from any of his movies? Just go ahead. What, what do you like? So I want to hear why you like the church scene. But for me, it's the, uh, in There Will Be Blood, it's the scene when the uh, the Derek, or, or there, there's ga- a gas leak, and then it catches on, on fire uh, in, the, in the night. Yeah. And it's that long cut, and like he runs to rescue H.W., sets him down, and and he's like, no, don't leave me. And he runs back, and th- that tense music in the background, like I, I was so moved. But and I don't move to do what I don't know. But it was just like the scene of greed at its worst, yeah. And how his son has lost his hearing, but he's also happy and high fiving because it it means we're rich. We're on way more oil than I thought we were. How is H W oh, not good? Right, but still overall happy in that scene that there's more money to be made. I think that's the scene where he chooses, right? Like he chooses the money over his son. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You see, yeah. like he has a direct choice: it's stay with his son or go to the what's happening. And and it also like it's it's conflicted, right? Like he's he's not just going to get money that's blowing away in the wind. Like he has to cut the guide wires. Yeah. To sort of because no one else knows what to do uh, so you admire him for being this successful smart oil man yeah um but also you're right he's choosing enterprise over his son yeah uh which which relates directly to my church scene and what we talked about about um you know is there humanity in daniel Plainview? what does he actually feel about his son i do think he's lying at the end when he says you were just a ploy right um and another piece of evidence is the scene the confession scene where eli has power over daniel for the first time in the movie daniel to get the land that he wants to build the pipeline that he wants he has to go to eli's church and he has to get baptized in front of everybody so this is like eli 
getting revenge on Daniel for beating him up in the mud. Yeah. And not saying his name earlier. This yeah. is now yeah. Eli is yeah. finally in the position of power and is absolutely going to get at Daniel where he knows it hurts him. So he makes Daniel proclaim some things in front of the crowd. And he makes him say something like, uh, I'm a sinner. Yeah. It starts with stuff yeah. like that, right? And Daniel's, you can tell he's annoyed, but he's going along with it, right? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a blasphemer. I'm a blasphemer. He's just like repeating everything Eli says, like, okay, okay, let's get this out of here. And I forget the build up to it, but Eli tells him to say, I abandoned my child. Yeah. And it's, that's the one, when you watch it, Daniel pauses and you can see this like vein throbbing and his lips curl and he looks at Eli and he, there's all this hatred and he, he was kind of going along with it before then but when he makes him say I abandoned my child he stops to look at Eli like I'm gonna fucking kill you for this like yeah, do yeah. not me I abandoned my child what I abandoned my child and he screams it and Eli right. didn't tell him to scream it so why is he screaming it and he repeats it I abandoned my child and then he says my boy! And uh, Eli didn't tell him to say that. Uh, that's just... I think his, that's that's a true moment. for In, a, in yeah. a weird, perverted way, Eli actually has brought out the truth. Right. And this, this ceremony, this dog and pony show, this song and dance, has actually kind of like the processing scene, again, with repetition. Yeah. And you have to repeat things and repeat things in the master. There's a lot of, like, say your name. Say, your, say it again. Say it again. Right. Say it again. There's something about right. repeating something that eventually people sort of break down and you get a true reaction. So I right. think that's Daniel's big confession where he admits to himself and to everybody that he does feel tremendous guilt for abandoning his child. Right. A knockout performance. Absolutely. And then at the end, makes Eli do the same thing. Right, makes Eli confess. I'm a, he, yeah, God is a false prophet. Superstition. I'm a, I'm a pro- and God is a superstition. Yes, yes that's it. That's right. right. Makes Eli do the same thing. So they've they've both kind of had to come clean, so to speak, to right. one another. Right. Uh, and with some disastrous results. So. Okay. I think a good way to wrap this up might be I think Paul Thomas Anderson uses his movies as his own therapy sessions. It yeah. seems to me that he's exercising his personal demons through his work and that's sort of what drives him more than any plot or cohesive story or typical storyline necessarily this is true of many people's life work like uh, working through your own shite <laughs> their life work their their what they do with their free time like, yeah um and he's yeah he's honest about it and we get to benefit from his therapy or not. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> okay. Thank you for joining, Theron. Thanks for having me. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Hey there. Remember that you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and many other options. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram as The Viewer Scott. Bye-bye. <laughs>